Hi, this is John Eskelson, and this is section hiking the Appalachian Trail. I'd like to through hike one of our nation's long trails, but I don't have the time right now to do that. But what I can do is take a week here and there and section hike the Appalachian Trail. On this podcast, I'll tell you what I'm learning about the trail, the skills needed, the food, and the gear for a successful hike. We'll dive in deep and hopefully come out the other end ready to tackle the trail. We are sponsored by the Committee to Restore America's National Parks, an advocacy group for everyday people determined to convince Congress to eliminate the $12 billion maintenance backlog in our nation's parks. Please check them out at www.RestoreAmericasNationalParks.org. That's RestoreAmericasNationalParks.org. Welcome to episode two of Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. Um, we'll get right after. We'll get right at it um, today. What we'll talk about is uh, in the first part of the podcast. We'll talk about the actual plan that I have developed to hike the Appalachian Trail, and then second, um, we'll talk about some of the things that make a good campsite. Um, but getting right off the start. Um, I spent a lot of time talk, thinking about and, and plotting out um, the the plan I, I have for uh, my first section hike. So I've decided to go up and uh, hike between uh, April 24th, completing my section hike on uh, Sunday, May 3rd. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, first, it, it's a it's a good time in the sp- late spring, where historically speaking in this area, the weather is normally pretty good, um, where the highs are in the upper 60s and the lows are in the low 40s, and if and there typically isn't a lot of rain in this during this time period. Now, for me, that is an ideal hiking weather. Um, it's cool enough that um, you get some warmth but it's not super hot and then it's cool enough at night that you can get some uh, good slumber and uh, but it's not too cold either. The other thing I like about this time of year um, for hiking is that in terms of hiking time you know it's you know during December when it at least here in the mid-Atlantic region and it's darker or further north, you, the further north you go. Um, the hiking time is, is shorter unless you want to hike in the dark um, using your headlamps. During this time of year, um, you know, sunrise is sometime between 6 a.m. and 6.25 in the morning with um, twilight starting anywhere between uh, 4.45 to 4.30 in the morning. And then you can, with twilight closing on the end time, sometime after 9.30 at night, which to me gives gives plenty of daylight. That's over 13 and a half hours of daylight every day, which makes for a lot, a lot of good hiking time during light um, when you can see. Um, so I found that also advantageous. Both the weather is historically good during this last week and uh, there's 
there's plenty of light to really kick off and um, try to get some good long hiking days in. So with those with those um, features in mind, um, I thought about how I would approach this hike, um, trying to think more like a through hiker, um, acknowledging that I won't be. And um, what I think my plan would be is to take the train up from Union Station in D.C. to Harper's Ferry on the evening of April 23rd. And when I, after I take the trail, train, I'll, I'll spend the night up in Harper's Ferry and then kick off from there and head southbound through Virginia, through Northern Virginia. My goal ultimately will be to get myself down to Waynesboro about 160 miles away. That's a pretty ambitious hike. That averages about uh, 20, uh, just under 20 miles a, a day. Um, for the for the eight or nine days that I'll be hiking um, between uh, the 24th and the 3rd of May. And what I did is I uh, calculated out, I, I, I developed a spreadsheet with every listed campsite um, between Harper's Ferry and Waynesboro, Virginia in uh, Rockfish Gap at the southern end of the Shenandoah National Park. And I, and I kind of plotted out their mile markers and figured out how far I would get if I went 10 miles a day, 15 miles a day, and then 20 miles a day. And obviously, you know, how far you get is, is kind of contingent upon, you know, how hard you hike, how far you hike every day. Um, Obviously, if I am able to maintain a pace of approximately 20 miles a day, I get a lot further. In fact, I finished getting to Waynesboro on the 2nd of May as opposed to the 3rd of May. So in some ways, that seems like it would be a better, better than not. But more likely than not, I'll, I'll have some shorter days than, than that. Um, what I find interesting, actually, is that there are 34 different established set campsites between Harper's Ferry at mile marker 1024.8 and uh, Rockfish Gap, which leads to Waynesboro at mile marker 863.7. And depending upon how far I'm going in a particular day, um, I might end up in some random location in between established uh, campsites. For instance, um, on April 29th, if I am averaging 15 miles a day, I am in the Shenandoah National Park. I'm approximately six miles past the bird's nest, number three, but about five miles before the Rock Springs hut at mile marker 929.7. So what, you know, what I think about all this and what my thought process is, is that obviously I will have of some variable days when it comes to um, how far I'm able to get. Some days will be better than others. Um, but at the same time, um, I like having these established um, sites that I can use as um, kind of guideposts as to kind of how far I'm able to do and make assessments of uh, how hard 
I need to push um, before I get to a place where I think I can stop. Um, the other thing I really like about kind of listing out all these places and kind of gauging distance based on the number of miles hiked is that I really like the idea of the flexibility that comes after being kind of so structured. Um, for me as a person in my life, I try to structure things as tightly as possible. For instance, like I did with this hike and establishing um, all the campsites between uh, on a spreadsheet and kind of like their mile markers, then what the average distance would be based upon how how far I go every day, assuming I maintain a consistent mileage. But then I know that once I get out on the trail, it'll be much easier to actually maintain or sorry, actually be more flexible knowing that, you know, if I go 10 miles today, I'll be able to get to this point uh, on the trail, like, I don't know, Rod Hollow Shelter at my mile marker 995. But, you know, if I'm able to stick it out and push it on for another seven miles or so, I can get down to Sky Meadow State Park and, you know, at two, two and a half miles an hour, that's only really... I don't know, three to four, three to four more hours. So depending on what time of day it is when, when I'm doing that. Anyway, I like the idea of having the data and kind of having a pacing guide, um, knowing full well that I might feel really good and be able to kick it up a notch and, and get myself to 20 miles a, on a, a particular day. Whereas I just might feel crappy and my legs might feel horrible and everything might be bad and I might have to take a break. So, you know, so I, I know that on the one hand, it seems pretty um, stilted and perhaps overly structured to kind of construct a spreadsheet like this. But on the other hand, I really do like the, the flexibility it gives to work within those structures to kind of understand um, where I'm at, where I might be at any given time and, you know, how much uh, my mileage could alter depending upon how I'm feeling on any given day. One of the issues that I've uh, given some thought about, um, particularly as I've gone through uh, the various established campsites is what are the requirements for camping along the Appalachian Trail? Is there a requirement for me to stay at one of these pre-established uh, camping sites that are along the trail? And what I found, at least for Virginia and in the Shenandoah National Park, is that there really isn't. Um, it's encouraged um, to, to try to preserve the, the land and to minimize the impact of humans, particularly as the trail becomes more and more popular for, for hikers. But it's not legally required. I know that in other parts of the trail, particularly in New York and I think in Massachusetts, um, there are requirements to do that, uh, to utilize uh, pre-established um, camping locations that are all on the trail. So when I get up into that part of the woods, I'll have to think more about that. But right now, um, I like the idea that I will have the option to utilize these pre-established uh, campsites. 
but that I'll be able to also kind of duck to the side, um, get off the trail, um, and find my own campsite and have some privacy. Obviously there are trade-offs and pluses and minuses to, um, staying at an established campsite versus being kind of on one's own. Um, on the one hand, I'm a sociable person. Um, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is I learned through talking and I, I would have the opportunity to kind of hang out with fellow hikers, um, chat about the trail, um, learn from other people's experiences and just have a better time from a social perspective. If I spent all my time at established campsites, um, on the other hand, you know, there's some downsides to being in established places where people are camping all the time together. So for instance, there are tend to be more scavengers, um, mice and raccoons and other, other little creatures that want to eat your food. Um, not to mention, uh, potential for bears. Um, once they kind of figure out how to, that food is at a certain place, that's where they're going to come looking. You might not have that on the side of the road, um, on a, on your own, uh, campsite. The other aspect is that, you know, I get to hear people, uh, snoring through the night. Actually, I know that's a problem for other people. I'm actually probably going to be the part of the problem for those light sleepers. Um, as opposed to those people who are able to sleep more deeply and more fully, um, on their own. So, um, th there are some trade-offs. I mean, some of the, my understanding, uh, that some of the campsites in Northern Virginia are not fairly level or not very level or, or even, and they're also pretty hard from repeated use. So, you know, I, I am, grateful that should I desire, I'll have the opportunity to sleep separately from pre-existing pre campsites. However, I do like the option and I'm pretty certain I'll take the option to, uh, to camp with others um, from time to time as well. For our final segment of the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, different places to find a good or as Andrew Skirka, the famed backpacker, calls it a five-star campsite. Now I've looked at a variety of um, several different places that talk about selecting good campsites, and most of them are fairly similar, although I do like Andrew Skirka's uh, descriptor the best, um, and I've included his website with his blog posts on this issue in the show notes. The problem that a lot of people have when they camp is that they pick pretty kind of crazy places to camp and then they have a poor time. Um, sometimes the places are cold, they're damp, they lead to condensation in the tents or they're buggy. Um, one of the challenges that I think a lot of people have on the Appalachian Trail is that you, if you camp on the pre-existing spots, those locations are hard and non-porous and um, they're not necessarily flat either. Additionally, um, one of the challenges that you might have is if you camp in a pre-existing place, you're going to have other people who are around you. Um, if they've been section hiking for a long time, they might be smelly. 
they could snore. I'm sure that's a problem if someone were to uh, sleep nearby me. I know that I snore at times. And then there's also sometimes rodents and other creatures that um, come around where food, where, where food is left out or where people are who have had food in the past. So those are, those are challenges, right? And so one of the ways that uh, Skarka lays it out is that you want to pick a good place that is relatively, he says, relatively warm, dry, private, aesthetic, and free of bugs, rodents, and bears. And so he lays out a pathway that someone can follow in order to help achieve this this goal of getting that kind of campsite, a five-star campsite, as he calls it. The first thing he says is you got to learn the rules. Um, there's a lot of places that don't let you camp where you want. As we mentioned earlier today in this podcast, um, in Virginia and in the Shenandoah National Park, while it's encouraged, it's not required that you camp at the pre-existing camp locations. And there are some trade-offs about whether you do so or not. For me, the issue is mostly going to be uh, is mostly going to be whether or not am I at a point where I need to stop today, and is this campsite what I need? Um, if not, if I still have a couple miles in me and there's no campsite for the next five six miles, but I might not make it. Then I'll go until I'm done, and then I'll pull off into the side and set up camp for the night. I know, as I mentioned earlier, that there's other places along the trail that's going to require me to do just that. So once you've established where you're going to camp, or um, here are some things, some features to look for, and you know, Skirka goes into a great deal of uh, detail about kind of looking at uh, map features beforehand to identify key areas that make a good campsite. Um, he calls this first section uh, finding a good camping zone. He says that you need to find some place that is safe. And by, by safe, he means, you know, a place that doesn't have dead trees in it or is near a roadside that can be easily accessed by locals um, or is in a canyon prone to flooding. So look at the geographic features where it's nearby and for safety. He prefers areas that are drier, um, particularly for issues of condensation. Um, he prefers areas that are a little bit away from a water source. Um, water uh, lakes and big rivers tend to be cooler and are more humid and tend to have more bugs. He thinks that he looks for places that minimize heat loss. So under a dense tree canopy that will minimize thermal loss. So if you're out in the air in a meadow, it might be beautiful but you'll also, all that heat that you generate goes straight up into the air. He also looks for places on, you know, the elevation that um, that campsite might be at. So it was a high versus a low elevation. That can change the temperature from three to five degrees depending upon where you're at. Um, where the, the next factor he looks at is are the resources and amenities. So if you're on an extended camping trip in a large group site, you may want some uh, specific amenities, um, additional you know, places to do and features that you won't need if it's just by yourself. Um, talks a little bit about water, how it's easy to have, to plan ahead and have sufficient water to do some uh, cooking at night and in the morning and then getting up and moving on to another location. We've talked a little bit about scavengers and privacy 
And then last, the last feature he talks about are aesthetics. Um, he really likes beautiful places and has some beautiful photography on his website that kind of highlights those kinds of um, ideal locations to camp out. And then once he's kind of sorted through those, uh, identified a zone that has those features that he's looking for, he looks for specific camping spots. Specifically, he's looking for a flat, level, and soft place to camp. Flat and level are pretty self-explanatory, but soft tends to be warmer ground and uh, where water is less likely to be pooled. Um, and then from there, once you identify kind of your specific, you're identifying your specific spot, you kind of are trying to think about what are the trade-offs that you're willing to make. So is it a place that might get a little more condensation, maybe a little damper, but you're going to, you're going to have, um, you know, prevent some heat loss by being under a dense tree canopy. Or is it safer, even though it might be closer to water, it might be a little buggier. Um, do you take a place that's more exposed to wind, but will minimize bugs because bugs don't like, don't like breezes, um, you know, and the like. So, I mean, there's a variety of different uh, issues to consider. Um, I was thinking about uh, some of the places um, along the Appalachian Trail in Northern Virginia. And I, my guess is that it's going to be fairly busy and that I probably won't find places that have that much uh, privacy to them. And, uh, but we'll, you know, definitely be focused on dry and safe. Um, the elevation is probably not going to be a big deal. It's all going to be within a few, you know, be a few hundred feet of each other. And, um, you know, I, I think as long as I'm able to have sufficient water to cook with, I think I'll be fine in terms of amenities. So I'm excited about the plan that I've developed um, for my section hike. And uh, I'm going to start when I walk the dog or go through wooded areas in my neighborhood, kind of start looking at some of the different factors that were identified by Skirka and some of the other uh, places I looked at. Um, for an ideal camping spot um, when I am dispersed camping. I appreciate you listening to this today, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Um, thanks for listening to Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail.